It's so good to be able to be together tonight, isn't it? When we come to the first day of the week, we always look so forward to the privilege of assembly. So many things about us in the world are often distasteful, they're not the least bit pleasant, and yet, due to the nature of life, we realize they have to be done, but yet we look forward to coming in peace and harmony and fellowship one with another for the express purpose of glorifying and magnifying God. It's always so good, of course, to be able to be together, not only as the membership, but the visitors that come our way. We are currently involved in a somewhat of a long series of lessons, really, on the Sunday evening lessons. You may notice on the wall to my left, we continue to give some consideration to what is involved in knowing God. In particular, very briefly admittedly, but these are some of the things that you and I have noted already in the weeks that have now passed. We began with a lesson that called upon us to appreciate the importance of knowing God. The fact that those who do not know Him will not be eternally saved. They will be cast into that fiery and very, very agonizing place known as hell. Following that, we looked at some of these things. We noticed the Godhead and our knowledge of Him focusing very carefully upon the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We saw the emphasis and the centrality is always in the gospel. We learned about His name, Yahweh, the grandeur and significance and magnificence of that name. We also appreciated His omnipresence, His omniscience, and His omnipotence. As you can see, we then learned about His judgment. The fact that that God of love is that by the same token a God who takes judgment very seriously. After we had appreciated that fact, we've devoted the last three lessons to looking at the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. As always, when we give thought to knowing God, there is so much that might be said. Tonight, as you probably have already seen by that title that's listed in the bulletin, as well as the one that was on the wall previously, we're going to give some thought to the glory of God as well as the sovereignty of God. As a bit of a prelude to those, they in many ways have a strong coupling, which is why I joined them for this one lesson. But I believe we shall again appreciate that the Bible has so much to say about those. By the same token, it's somewhat sad. Our nation has, it seems, veered from an appreciation of God's glory, and it has veered from an understanding of His sovereignty. Tonight, why don't we revisit those topics, again using the Scriptures as our thrust and as our guide. To speak about the glory of God is to immediately ask, what does the word glory signify? You can see at the top of that slide, it has to do with splendor, it has to do with honor, and it has to do with respect. And thus, when reference is made to the glory of God, it is immediately something that associates immediately to respect for Him, the splendor of Him, and the understanding of the respect you and I should have to Him. To say all of that, immediately our mind rushes to a number of places in which the Bible references the glory of God. I thought it would be a bit interesting to begin that by recollecting three scenes from the Old Testament. All of these are specifically intriguing because it's not just a matter of glory per se. It is the way that glory was manifested. Let me express what it seems to me we should at least consider briefly about that. As you start in Exodus 24, 16, there the children of Israel were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. 
Moses had been called up into the mount, and there he received that which was the law of Moses. As he received those laws and as he appreciated the hand of God making them known and available to him, that text in Exodus 24, 16 tells us the glory of God was on the mount. There was something very special and very significant about the fact that God's glory was seen there. You and I remember in chapters previous that mountain quaked and it smoked as a result of the power of God upon it. Might we also recollect in that consideration that here was a visible manifestation in one way or another about that marvel of God's glory. What about that scene in Exodus 40:34? last chapter in the book of Exodus. On this occasion, God had delivered previously to Moses the pattern for constructing the tabernacle. And we remember the furnishings that went in it and the features of all of its dimensions. The amazing thing about that particular verse that I have asked you to note is that Moses had finished the completion, the, ten, the tabernacle had been erected, and then it said the glory of God filled that tabernacle. Now, the specific way in which that occurred, was it a visible smoke of some form? Was it a silhouette? Was it some particular manifestation otherwise that was visible? The text doesn't say anymore, but it does say God's glory filled that tabernacle. Look over to 1 Kings 8. On that occasion, now centuries later, Solomon had constructed the temple that ornate and extravagant structure, and you and I remember the gold and the various precious metals that were within it. It was truly something to behold. But one more time, it observes that God's glory filled that temple. 1 Kings 8:11. I mention all those to appreciate that on those far distant times in the ancient past, God's glory appeared in a means whereby the human family could directly appreciate it as He dealt with the children of Israel. Each one of those instances was a specific moment in the history of ancient Israel. As we move through our lesson further tonight, we're going to ask, what about spiritual Israel today? Does God's glory present itself in an overt and marvelous manner, calling upon you and me to appreciate the God who is our leader? Maybe in light of that, let's continue our journey. The glory of God... The psalmist expressly declared, it does endure forever. It continues onward. It continues, in fact, in such a powerful and marvelous way. I've called you to notice the 31st verse of Psalm 104, the enduring characteristic. You and I know that sometimes the human family doesn't give much honor to God's glory. They choose to pursue things that God does not find approving, and yet the text still says God's glory will endure forever. You and I can take great comfort in that thought. We can in fact appreciate that the sovereignty of God that we'll discuss in just a moment is something man can never ever set aside. Our journey continues onward like this. The Bible is so full of references reminding us of the exquisite character of God's glory. May I ask you to notice, it is great. Psalm 138, verse 5. Furthermore, it is absolutely magnificent. Psalm 113, verse 4. As the psalmist made those remarks, 
There were times that he found himself in very difficult circumstances, but yet it was the glory of God that was a focal point to which he could always turn. May we quickly say, and that's still true today, when your life and mine is beset with issues and problems and difficulties and hardships and oppressions, isn't it true we still can rely upon the crosshairs focused upon the glory of God and recognize that it is great and that it by all means will persevere. God's glory also manifested in the nature of His creation. I'm sure we each anticipated that that part was going to come in our lesson. It's not just that God's glory is an abstract thing that you and I can consider in a theological way. The earth is full of His glory. Didn't God say that in Isaiah 6 verse 3? On that occasion when Isaiah was being commissioned to begin the work as a prophet, he was told, don't you ever lose sight of the fact that the earth is full of the glory of God. As Isaiah would preach in the years ahead and call upon the people of Judah to recognize God's glory and His laws, that was an image Isaiah was never to forget. In addition to that, might we also remember the very last book in all of the book of God. In Revelation 4, verses 9 through 11, we remember it again was an encompassing scene. It is something that perhaps you and I have learned to appreciate by way of visualization. There was a throne. There was a one sitting on that throne and there was a rainbow over him. It was a throne that was absolutely majestic. Clearly the one on the throne was the ruling king. And as that chapter unfolds, we realize it's God the Father on that throne. And as He rules and He reigns in royal splendor, we appreciate the closing verses of that chapter now bring us to the, to the moment of, at hand. We notice that His creation is such that, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, worthy art Thou to receive glory and power. Notice it's His creation that should call the mind of man to the understanding of God's glory. It really is an amazing thing. The creation that's about us, this earth upon which we live, this footstool of the God of heaven, it should be a constant reminder of His glory for He made this. He sustains it. He upholds it. He brought all of its systems into the current means by which they are ongoing systems. They were not made happenstantially, and they don't, in fact, exist that way today either. They are motivated, empowered, and put in course by the God of all glory. This universe is a testimony to that fact. In Psalm 19, verse number 1, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork." When you and I peer out on a clear night, we haven't had so many of them lately... But as we appreciate the number of those stars, even at best you and I with the unaided eye can only see a few thousand of them. And yet there are telescopes that exist by which we can peer into the heavens and see untold trillions of objects out there. Understanding in them are truly the things that testify to the glory of God. We serve a God that made all of that. Scientists have all they can do to appreciate it, striving to understand the way by which it happened and the understanding of what changes are found within it. And our God knew it all. His glory, it's a testimony to it.
Surely in light of that, we can close our list with this statement. In Isaiah 43, verse number 7, we have a monumental utterance. In that context, God was speaking about His people Israel. And you might notice that there was a powerful statement of purpose that was presented. Why did God choose and select Israel? For what purpose were they there? What was the grand objective of their existence? You and I could offer many features, no doubt, that would be important elements in that listing. But there God gives us the explicit affirmation, I made them to glorify me. The whole purpose for the existence of ancient Israel, the entire purpose for her existence was to glorify God. So long as she did that, she fulfilled her purpose. Every time she failed... She failed to glorify God. It wasn't that she failed militarily. It wasn't that she failed by other means or aspects. She failed in the primary purpose. Why don't we use that as an interesting point of question for you and me? Why am I here? Why has God allowed me to walk upon this planet for the years that He has? A person is born, a person dies. Why is that person here? Many a philosopher has wrestled with that question. Many an individual, perhaps in his finer moments of profoundness, has wondered, what's the grand objective of my life? May we never forget, ours is no different than it was for ancient Israel. We're here to glorify God. What was it Solomon affirmed in Ecclesiastes 12.13? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man is summed up in that one little verse. The purpose for you and me, our objective, our commission, the thrust that is to be your life and mine, it should be centered around, pursuant of, and fully conversant with, fearing God and keeping His commandments. Am I fulfilling the objective of my life? Are you? It's a sobering question, isn't it? Surely in light of that, we close the slide by noting there's a command then on several occasions in the Word of God reminding all of us to never forget to glorify God. In 1 Chronicles 16, 29, wasn't it David there who said, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. You and I are commanded to appreciate that just as surely as that was true for the people of David's day, it still remains to be true for you and me. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. When we studied His name a few Sunday evenings ago, that name Yahweh, we saw how great that name was. It's a name worthy of the glory you and I could direct to it. Notice again that word glory identifies splendor and respect and honor. That reminds us of the sadness and tragedy when individuals choose to disrespect His name, using it in vain. He did command ancient Israel to never, ever do that. The third of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh His name in vain. Exodus 20, verses 7 and following. Surely as we think about that commandment to glorify, why don't we come to the New Testament? As often as we could remark of the Old Testament significance of that, what about the New Testament? Let him that glory, glory in the Lord. 
If you and I are going to glory, we ought to then satisfy that aspect and that desire by glorying in God. As we think about that, the next slide takes us even further, leading us to make some additional applications of that thought. Because isn't it now the case, we could ask a very clear question. So far, the glory of God is a splendid thing for us to have discussed. Question, in an abstract, but yet in a very profound way, where is that glory housed? Where is it found? You'll notice the Scriptures identify it's appreciated in none other in the grandest of all ways in Jesus the Christ. I have listed a whole host of verses, and we may not look at all of them in passing detail, but let me just call to your attention a few of them. In Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. Now the particular context of that passage may have slipped you and me, but here's a brief reminder. That is a passage that Jesus quoted practically verbatim in the New Testament. Picture the scene with me. Jesus had just begun His earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. He goes back to His hometown, Nazareth, and He goes into the synagogue and He, of course, is given the role and He reads from it. He was allowed the privilege of selecting anywhere He wanted to read. That was one of the aspects of the ancient synagogue worship. Jesus moved the scroll and found Isaiah 61, and that's what He read. And at the conclusion of it, He said, "...today this is fulfilled in your ears." And the text that Jesus read that day was a text that highlighted the glorification of God. And He said, I'm the one that's the fulfillment of that passage. Isn't that amazing? The ultimate glorification of God is found in what attaches to Jesus the Christ and the blessings that He affords. In Haggai 2 verse number 9, maybe is another passage that is somewhat shocking but you remember again an interesting scene in which the people of Israel had rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed in Nebuchadnezzar's day. As they rebuilt it, that second temple was far inferior, at least in regard to the things that made it up. They didn't have access to all the gold and the silver and the fine wood, so they did the best they could do. However, an amazing text is found. In Haggai 2.9 it says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the first one. And those of that day were no doubt greatly emboldened by such a statement. How could this building be more exquisite than the first one? The answer is simple. Jesus the Christ would walk in this second one. As He ultimately would come to this planet, born of course in Bethlehem, the time would come He would walk in that one. And inasmuch as that were true, of course, its glory would be far grander because the Son of God was in it. There's how you and I appreciate that marvelous passage in Haggai 2. Maybe finally, I would ask you to notice quickly in Galatians 6.14. One final admonishment as Paul closed that Galatian letter. He said, I will glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognized there was no need to glory in anything else. He had placed his citadel upon the cross of Jesus Christ, and in that and that alone he claimed, I will glory. May you and I feel just as strongly as he. When you and I hear that word glory, we sometimes think about those who would boast and brag, and those who would in fact direct their preeminence in a certain way. Paul says, my preeminence, 
will extend no further than the cross. It is in the cross you and I have every reason to feel such glory as we think about the one that died for us. Perhaps as you go on down that list, you'll quickly observe so many other verses attach the glory of God to the Christ. In Psalm 24, the last two verses of that chapter, there is a rather moving and somewhat compelling set of questions that are asked. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Reference is made there, of course, about the great glory of God. The King of glory. And yet that passage finds its fulfillment in Jesus the Christ. He is the King of glory. And when in Acts chapter 1 our precious Savior ascended back to the Father, indeed the doors of heaven were open and back He came. Indeed the King of glory had come home. Might we then in light of those things come to the observation that is now before us. Consider the penalty and the sadness that attaches to that state in which a person fails to glorify God. We noted a moment ago the purpose, the mission, the objective of life is to glorify God. What if a person fails in that? What if a person does not honor the Christ? Several examples in the Bible are found of those who were in that condition. Why don't we begin in Acts 12, 23? You remember Herod. He was a very popular figure, at least in some ways. But among other ways, he was an eloquent presenter. He could talk well. He could talk persuasively. And on one occasion near the close of Acts 12, as he was speaking to a large audience gathered, they were so impressed by the way that he talked and what he said, they called him a god. He took the glory to himself, you see. And we remember what the next verse says. He bred worms and died. It's a serious thing then to fail to glorify God, to take the glory that rightfully belongs to Him and to take it to ourselves. Consider the days of Daniel as another example. You remember Belshazzar. In the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, we read about a man who gave thought only to the things of this world. In fact, he threw a great feast. It was on that feast, you remember, a hand appeared and wrote some things on the wall. Tikel, tikel, as that statement was ultimately made and presented on the wall, you and I remember that it had a message for him. It wasn't arbitrary writing. The fact is, later in verse 23 of Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, as Daniel interpreted, he told him, You have not glorified God. You've been weighing the balances and found wanting. What about Randy Bybee today? What about you there is an internal balance. And if, am I found lacking or wanting in the balance of God? If so, I should expect my fate to be no better than Belshazzar's. You may remember as that chapter ended, he died. He died apparently apart from and not in favor with God. How sad it is to not appreciate glorifying God. Whether it be Daniel, whether it be Herod, we might now add into that that refrain in Galatians chapter 6. In verses 7 and 8, God is not mocked. You and I remember as simply and as profoundly as that statement reads, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's, that he's going to reap. 
He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of that Spirit reap life everlasting. You may notice, although the thought of God's glory clearly is there, the Word does not directly appear. But it does say God is not mocked. Men may thumb their nose at God. They may take His Word and cast it aside as if it's unimportant, and their fate will be no better than that of ancient Jehoiakim, who in Jeremiah 36 took his pen knife and cut up the Word of God because he didn't like what it said. However, you and I remember God commissioned Jeremiah, who in fact had Baruch to rewrite the same prophecies and even strengthen them, because you just cannot treat God's Word lightly like that. That's a great lesson for us today still, isn't it? As you and I so far have discussed the glory of God, we'll close that particular slide with that observation of 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your heart, which are God's. When you and I then think about the command to glorify God, that's given to all of us. We must be then dutiful to do it. The whole thought of God's glory, I suppose, prepares us for the next slide because the sovereignty of God is the next topic before us. Tonight as we look at this pair of issues, not only His glory but that of His sovereignty, look at how this slide begins. There have been those who have asserted that the major teaching of the entirety of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. What did the person mean by a statement like that? Well, the word sovereign may sound like a rather fancy jurisdictional term, but the idea is really pretty simple. It just identifies the right to reign. An individual or a being that possesses the right, the authority to reign, R-E-I-G-N. And so it is that as you and I ponder the sovereignty of God... Didn't it say it in Exodus 15, 18? He shall reign forever. Just as surely as His glory endured forever, so too His right to reign shall never cease and it shall never end. You and I don't know about the whimsical features of what time shall bring, but this much we know. God will always have the right to reign. His absoluteness, the thunderous assertion of His ability and His knowledge to reign. It is, that being said, why don't we count for just a moment in the fourth chapter of Daniel. The book of Daniel is truly an interesting book as it relates to the sovereignty of God. I'd like to ask you to reflect for just a moment upon Nebuchadnezzar as he reigned over ancient Babylon. No one would question that ancient Babylon was a powerful empire in its day. And Nebuchadnezzar was a regal and powerful monarch in his day. It was though in that very context when at the height of his power, the prophet Daniel came before him and reminded him of the sovereignty of God. You may be powerful, Nebuchadnezzar, but there's one far more powerful than you. You may be mighty and a great lawgiver, Nebuchadnezzar, but there is one who is absolutely grander than you and who is the marvelous sovereign leader. For that reason, notice verse 25, God rules in the kingdoms of men. It's true that there are empires and there are hundreds of countries scattered around the globe. They have their presidents and their parliaments and they have their princes and their monarchs. They have their kings on occasion. 
the fact remains, God rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. Just as surely as God rules in the kingdoms of men, it is that that prompts us to notice a number of examples in Scripture of how God does rule in the kingdoms of men. Perhaps none any finer than the 10th chapter of Isaiah. As that book somewhat is at still its beginning, God reminds the prophet as well as the people of the day that that nation at that time known as Assyria, God says they are instruments in my hand. I'll raise them up when I'm ready. I'll cast them aside when I'm ready. Assyria was a rod in the very hand of God to inflict damage and punishment upon those who were deserving of such but also to recognize the innate ability of God to control the affairs of that nation. Question. The United States of America today, in the year 2015, I suppose there was a time when it would have been widely regarded as a nation at least trusting as a rod in the hand of God for good. Is that true any longer? Perhaps still a rod in his hand, but maybe not so much for good anymore. Because as a nation, if we fall aside from the perfectness of what is His will and we fail to glorify Him, what happened to those nations who did not glorify Him and those individuals who chose a different course? It is in that regard I would invite you to notice the blessings that come unto those nations that do choose to honor and glorify Him Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm 144, verse 15. The psalmist stated it like this a number of chapters earlier. You'll notice in particular in Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Blessings were provided, pronounced, rewards were asserted. And wasn't it true that Solomon, the marvelous writer of Proverbs, affirmed, Righteousness exalteth a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14, 34. Having looked at that side of the coin, lifted high the beautiful state of honoring and glorifying God, look at the opposite side of that coin. What about those nations that choose not to honor Him, that choose not to glorify Him? If ever there was a warning perhaps that should be sounded so loudly and clearly for the thinking people in our land, maybe... It ought to be the wording of Psalm 9, verse 17. Every nation that forgets God, what is its fate? What is its end? What is its destiny? You can read that verse for yourself, but every nation that forgets God is doomed for ruin and for destruction. Those are the words of the ancient psalmist. Aren't they thought-provoking words? Aren't they words that challenge us and ought, in fact, to be boldly proclaimed loudly and clearly all the places in which there are listening individuals in our land? But every nation that forgets God, it's not a pretty sight. One by one, as you think about the last statement on that slide, it is something to appreciate that sovereignty of God. Tonight it was read in our lesson text taken from Romans 14. There was an interesting statement found there. I've got, of course, that scene in which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. 
You may notice that which will be confessed and the one understood to be the ruling power because the knee will bow to that one is of course the Lord. Individuals who choose not in this life to honor Him, think about their state at the day of judgment. They now will directly face the one whom they did not honor in this life and now, and now they will confess His name though it will be too late. They will then bow before Him as the august and awesome one, but it will be too late to appreciate the eternal benefits then. It is now that we should honor Him, and now that we should, re we should respect His sovereignty. As you'll appreciate, eventually as all understand that, what about that text in Philippians chapter 2? Again, bringing us back to Jesus Christ. He did say, did He not, in Matthew 28, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And just as surely as all that authority rests with Him, you and now, I think, are drawn to a clearer appreciation of the church. We are part of that body whose task, whose mission, whose, whose lovely chore is to direct glory and honor to God through Christ. In Ephesians 3 verse 21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You and I don't know how long this world will last. We don't know the year, the moment, the time at which our Savior shall return, but this much we know until that moment, the duty, the responsibility, the grand message of the church is to bring glory to God through Jesus. Aren't you thankful we can do that? And aren't you honored to be a part of that mission? Because sure enough, as we understand all of that, Paul had to address this very attribute. And he did it in such profound fashion in Acts 17. We'll use that to close our lesson tonight. I would invite you to turn to the 17th chapter of Acts and listen to how Paul called upon the folks of that day, 20 centuries ago roughly, to appreciate the sovereignty of God and to do so by way of the application it would mean for their lives. The city was Athens, well known for its idolatry, well known for its free-thinking spirit and atmosphere, not unlike, might I say, the world of today. And as Paul challenged them, they were too superstitious, but he said, the God you call the unknown God, I'd like to tell you about Him. And so it was, beginning in verse 22, Paul had these words to say. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands." Do you note with me Paul's reference to God's right to reign both in heaven and on earth? He isn't finished. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Now please note how this verse ends. And hath determined the seasons before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. Paul, are you now saying 
that it's God, this great God that they were ignorant of, and this great God who has directed the proper and, and correct worship. It's that God who has determined the times before appointed. Furthermore, it's that God that has determined the bounds of their habitation. Where are men permitted to live on this planet? God has determined it. Where are the circumstances touching the appointed seasons of the human family? God has determined it because it's His right to reign. He's sovereign. Those things are absolutely within the palm of His hand. If it's true that He has determined the bounds of human habitation and if He's determined the fullness of human appointed seasons, what about my life daily? And what about yours? It is His right to reign even over the affairs of your life and mine. Are we dutifully submitting to Him? Are we honorably glorifying Him by the things that we do every day? It's easy, I suppose, on Sundays to feel that way. But what about tomorrow? Is my life and yours tomorrow an open reference and an open reflection of God's right to reign? It should be. I pray that in all of us it is that way because if so, it allows us to come to the thought of closing our lesson by at least thinking one last time about the features of His glory and the features of His sovereignty. We noted a moment ago from the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. But later in that same psalm, verses 7 through 11, there are comments about God's laws, His statutes, His judgments, His righteousness, and the features touching what He brings to the human family each day, and those are still His. Oh, how earnestly should be your desire and mine to reflect His glory and to detail His sovereignty. It is His right to reign. One day we're going to bow before Him whether we have done so in this life or not. It would be to our credit if we have already honored Him here. We've already understood His sovereignty here so that there we shall have no regret, so that there we shall be prepared to reflect that continuing glory throughout all the ages that shall be, of course, in heaven. Tonight, as we think about the state of our life, the main emphasis, of course, leads us back to the church. Unto Him be glory in the church. So if you're not a faithful member of the church, right now you're not glorifying God in the way that He would have you do it. May we say that could be remedied in just a few moments. If you're not a faithful member of that body, it could well be you've never become a member in any time or at any moment. Tonight, the gospel call of invitation is yours. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 reminds us that He calls us by the gospel. If you haven't responded to that call in a positive way yet, realize that you need to hear the Word. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name in the hearing of others as the Messiah, the Son of God, and be baptized. In that act of baptism... It is another remarkable reflection of the glory of God because you're added to the church. As you're then a part of that church, you can bring glory to God every day as you live faithfully to Him. If you have been a faithful member of that body, but as of tonight you're not, you know that things in life you've done, you've said, you've thought, and you know that things just need to be changed. The power of God can make those changes because He can forgive you and He will if you'll but do what He says. 
you need if those sins have been of a public thing, come back and request the prayers of individuals to God on your behalf and we'd be happy to pray to God for you, for your strength, for your continuing devotion in even stronger ways. If tonight we could be of help to anybody in your appreciation of His sovereignty or His glory, we'd love to help you and do so even now while together we stand and while we sing.